as we uh, as we start our exposition of the texts this morning, I want to just remind us of uh, of the recent context in the gospel accounts that will shed light on Jesus and his frustration and his weariness in this section we're going to read today. You know, we spent two whole weeks just in John chapter six dealing with Jesus's claim to be the bread of life, because that is such a confusing passage for so many people, and, and, and also because of all the tangled up theology that's resulted from people misunderstanding that chapter. And we spent a lot of time there. We talked about the Mormons who, who are not Christians. They're a cult, and, and they misunderstand, and they use that passage to their uh, advantage. And then our, we talked about our Calvinist brothers and sisters. They, they're Calvinists are Christians. We, be, we, did, we don't believe on all the same points of doctrine, but we're brothers and sisters. They also stumble, I think, through that passage. Uh, they're in the family, so we're good. You know, it's just like that weird uncle that uh, everybody has that shows up for Thanksgiving. But um, some of you are laughing because you're like, I have one of those. Um, Jesus was using this idea of bread, food, sustenance, to draw a spiritual parallel for us, to make it, to draw a picture um, the work that Jesus had set about at this point was laying a foundation for salvation to be made available to every man, woman, boy, and girl. So when Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, whoever believes in me shall never thirst, he was talking about himself, his life that he was going to lay down at the cross that would become the means of our spiritual sustenance. People, you know, in that day and age, people relied on bread. It was a staple food in that region at that time. Uh, and it was something that people needed for, for life, to live. So Jesus is using metaphors to draw a spiritual parallel. He's saying, hey, you need bread to live? What you really need is spiritual bread, me. I am the bread of life. Oh, you live in an arid desert climate and you need water to live? Well, what you really need is living water. You need me. I'm the source of living water that's, that's going to spring up from within you. And this is the life in the Spirit, and it's predicated on a person putting their faith solely in Jesus Christ for salvation. In fact, this is the theme of the whole Bible. You get to the New Testament, you get to the epistles. Uh, Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. And in chapter two, this is how he describes this reality. Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. You were following the prince of the power of the air. That's another name for Satan, right? You were following him. In, in, in the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom, Paul says, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We all carried out the desires of our bodies and our minds. We were all, by nature, children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he's raised us up with him, with Jesus, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, you are seated in a movie theater. He says you're seated with, okay, so there's a positional reality. There's an actual physical reality. We're seated in a theater. We're seated with Christ in the heavenly places if we put our faith in Jesus. By grace, you've been saved. Verse 7, he says, so that in the coming ages, he, Jesus, might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Again, he says, for by grace, you've been saved through faith. It's not of your doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of your works, your best effort, so that nobody can boast. You will never stand before God and say, look what I did for you, Lord. Aren't you impressed? never going to happen. It's not a result of our works. It's, it's, no, nobody can boast before God. But we are, verse 10, his workmanship. I love this word. It's the Greek word poiema. Uh, it, it means a masterpiece. He says, we are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus 
to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That, that all happens in the Spirit of God, not in the flesh, right? So, so we look back two weeks ago, we can see uh, in the text, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes and elders, they're all steeped. Do you remember? They were steeped in their religious traditions, and, and they were too immersed in that reality to even see what God was doing among them. It was their own venerated traditions that kept them from seeing Jesus clearly and understanding what God was doing among them and among the people. So in a place of being emotionally exhausted, you know, Jesus and his apostles withdrew to that area of Tyre and Sidon. It's a Gentile area where the Canaanites had settled. And um, it was in that context that that Canaanite woman came to him and was crying out, have mercy on me, O Lord, O son of David, my daughter severely oppressed by a demon. Remember, we talked about this. She was importunate. She was, she was a little pushy. She was persistent in her urgency. And Jesus was impressed by her. What's the word? Chutzpah. Hey, good for you guys. He was impressed by her chutzpah, and he healed her daughter with just a word. And now you're caught up. But as we go forward in the Gospels this morning, you're going to find out that Jesus is more and more done with hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is claiming to believe something, but acting in a different manner. Your mouth says one thing, your actions say something totally different. And as we've already seen, we've already talked about the word hypocrite. Now, that word derived in the Greek is the word for actor. A hypocrite is an actor, literally it means one who wears a mask. A hypocrite is someone who pretends to be what he or she is not. So let me give you a couple of passages from God's Word on the issue. And set up a filter in your mind this morning that as we read the text, you would see and clearly understand why Jesus hates hypocrisy so very much. <clears throat> I'll take you back to Isaiah. Isaiah condemned the hypocrisy of his day as a prophet of God, he said this, the Lord says, these people, he's speaking about the nation of Israel, these people draw near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but what? Their hearts are far from me. That's right. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. They talk a big game. But when it comes to action, when it comes to doing it, they, it's, it's bankrupt. They don't have anything, right? Centuries later, Jesus quoted this verse, aiming uh, the same condemnation at the religious leaders of his day. You find that in Matthew 15, 8 and 9. John the Baptist, if you'll remember when we, we, we were talking about John the Baptist and his ministry, he refused to give hypocrites a pass. He told them to produce fruit worthy or in keeping with repentance. You talk about God all day. Where's the repentance? Where's the fruit? It comes from the Spirit, right? Jesus took a staunch stand against sanctimonious people. He called them hypocrites. He called this gets worse. He called them wolves in sheep's clothing. That's Matthew 7 15. He called them whitewashed tombs. See, when you buried somebody in the ancient Middle East. The, the tomb was above ground, but you couldn't go into the tomb without being unclean, without becoming unclean, right? And so the, the, he says they're whitewashed tombs. They look great on the outside, but inside they're dead men's bones. He called them snakes. He called them a brood of vipers. Jesus was not very politically correct. It's one of the things I love about him. I think some of you do too. We're told in the scriptures that we cannot say that we love God if we do not love our brothers. Love must be without hypocrisy, Romans 12, 9. This is the issue, hypocrisy, right? Saying one thing, doing another. So with that in mind, let's go to the text this morning. Let's see why Jesus is so done with hypocrisy. Now, in your Harmony of the Gospels, this is section 115 to 117. I'll give you the scripture references here. This is Matthew 15. Uh, all the way down to 16.4 and Mark 8.10-12. So these are parallel passages. Here's Matthew's account, Matthew 15, starting in verse 39. 
And after sending away the crowd, he got into the boat and he went over to the region of Magadan. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and, and to test him, they asked him, show us a sign from heaven. I mean, if you're really the son of God, show us a sign from heaven. And he answered them, when it's evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, oh, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You guys know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and departed. Here's Mark's account. Remember, Mark is, uh, Mark is the amanuensis for Peter. This is Peter's telling. Peter was illiterate. He couldn't write. Uh, so Mark wrote for him. And so Mark 8, 10 to 12, and immediately he got in the boat with his disciples and he went to the dis district of Dalmanutha. And the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. and He said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Okay, so then we take these together and let's extrapolate some truths here. Uh, I, I've, been, I've been in and around church and church culture for almost 50 years. I've, I've seen a lot. <laughs> I've seen a lot. And I'll stop short of saying I've seen everything because as sure as I say that this week, Something will just blow, my, blow me out of the water. I'll be like, I can't, can't even believe it. Um, there are a great many things that grieve me about the church and its practices in both in the United States and all over the world, but especially in Western culture. But one of the big ones that I've seen do a tremendous amount of damage is the folks who are just neck deep into the signs and wonders movement. I won't go off script. I'm just going to, uh, God gave me this. I'll say this. Okay. Before I go there, I want to, we need to establish some vocabulary. Okay. Um, three words I want us to be familiar with. Evangelical, charismatic, Pentecostal. Blah, confused in the church. I don't even, you know, we use those words, but we don't use them precisely. So let me give you the definitions here because it's important that we get this right. Evangelical comes from the Greek evangelion. Actually, the V is a U sound. Evangelion. I won't even try it. Sorry. I, I take it back. Um, evangelical means the gospel. Evangelion is gospel. It means we share the gospel so that people will come to salvation. That's what evangelical means. We're an evangelical church. Um, the word charismatic comes from the Greek charis, and it has to do with spiritual gifts. That's the word for gift. And so Christians who believe that the spiritual gifts are still active in the church are charismatic. Um, and I'll just put a pin in that. And then the third, the third, uh, those four, uh, not four, three, my, my hand's not cooperating with me this morning. Uh, Pentecostal. There's a, there's, a, there's a tag, there's a name, Pentecostal. Pentecostal emphasizes the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which for them is evidenced by speaking in tongues, which is what happened at the day of Pentecost. And so they extrapolate that that should be indicative of how the church operates in all places at all times. And if you do not speak in tongues, I mean, there's some Pentecostals that go so far as to say, you're not even saved, right? So um, Emmaus Road Church is, you ready? <laughs> some of you are like, what have I come to this morning? Emmaus Road Church is an evangelical church. We believe in sharing the gospel with the lost so that they might come to salvation, right? We're an evangelical church, and we're a charismatic church. And you can just make the charismatic a little C if it helps you, okay? If you want to just make it a small c, that's fine. But that means we believe that every believer in Jesus Christ has been given at least one spiritual gift for the edification, the building up of the body of Christ. And not all the spiritual gifts are flashy gifts, right? So if you're not familiar with spiritual gifts, I, I would encourage you to 
you know, talk with me. I'd love to point you in, to some verses and some passages and, and help you think through that. We believe that the Spirit indwells believers at their conversion and that every believer in Jesus is given at least one spiritual gift for the building up of the body of Christ. The gifts will cease when the church ceases. The gifts are for the church. The gifts are for the building up of the church. When the gifts cease will be when we're all in heaven with Jesus. That's when that will cease. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, 11, all these gifts, Paul's writing, are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Now you can ask him for whatever gift you want, but he's going to give you what he wants to give you. Okay? And then you get to develop the use of that gift. And, and we all should be asking God, what, what gifts have you given me? And how can I use them for your glory? How can I use them to impact the people in my life for the gospel? But related to those topics is the discussion of supernatural signs and wonders, because that's where we get, the Pentecostal element kind of takes us there, whether we want to go there or not, right? And so uh, there's so much more to unpack on that topic than we have time for today. But I'll just say signs and wonders, <laughs> this may, some of you are like, what's he about to say? Am I, am I going to have to find another church? Um, signs and wonders are all over the Bible. They're all over the Bible, and they're not bad or evil, but they've been elevated in our American church culture to a place of undue focus. People are just totally enamored with, and, and when God does something supernatural, it's, it's amazing. Don't get me wrong, okay? But we've, we've, we've elevated the signs and wonders to a place of undue focus. And the reason that we know that such a thing is possible, the elevating too highly of something that God gives his people is because we see it on every page of the Bible. Anytime God gives them a gift, tells them to do something, hey, this is for you, this is for your good, they're like, oh, worship that, make much of that. He's like, no, uh, whew, guys, I'm still over here. You, you're paying attention to the new toy. I, I gave you the... It's crazy. It's like Christmas morning with small children. And, and so we see that. It's in every one of the 66 books that make up our Bible. So Jesus rebukes the Pharisees by telling them that it is an evil and adulterous generation that seeks for signs and that they're, gonna, they're not going to receive any signs except for one, the sign of Jonah. So remember that the Pharisees and Sadducees were attacking Jesus. They wanted him to rain down fire from heaven to prove who he was. They desired that he would show a sign to prove that he was their long-awaited Messiah. And in Matthew 16, 2 and 3, Jesus answered them, you know, <laughs> when it's evening, it's starting to get dark, the sun's going down, you, see, you look at the sky, you say, oh, it's going to be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, you say, oh, it's going to be stormy today because the sky is red and threatening. So, okay, great. So you know how to interpret the weather, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. I'm, he's like, Messiah standing right here. That's, it's pretty blatantly obvious, and you can't see it. You can't see it. So Jesus adds the following rebuke. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. They already had received more than enough evidence that Jesus was precisely who he claimed to be. They were only there to entrap him because he was a threat to their power over the people of Israel. And I still haven't answered the question. What is the sign of Jonah, right? Matthew 12, um, Jesus alludes to this in his answer. He says in verse 40, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so also will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then he goes on. He says that the men of Nineveh, <laughs> This is a pagan city, huge mega city in their day. He says, the men of Nineveh are going to rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. I mean, Jonah had been in the belly of a fish for three days. He's probably white. He's been in stomach acid. I don't know if you've ever thought about Jonah like that. He's been sitting in stomach acid for three days deep underwater, 
being carted along by some great fish and then spat up on the beach. I mean, he, he probably didn't look good. Uh, that's an understatement. But here, here's Jonah walking through Nineveh, preaching, repent, repent unto God, turn away from your idols, repent, or God will destroy the city. And you know what the Ninevites did? They repented. They repented. And so here's Jesus saying, huh, the men of Nineveh are going to rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. It's here. Sign of Jonah. What was it that made the Ninevites sit up and pay attention to Jonah? Well, Jonah was a prophet. Ah, who did that? Ha <laughs> ha, yes, veggie tales. Jonah was a prophet. I was counting on somebody doing it. I, I just didn't know who. That was awesome. Jonah was a prophet from the 8th century BC who reluctantly, I mean, go, go back and read Jonah this afternoon. It's a short book. He reluctantly went to the pagan city of Nineveh and he preached repentance unto God. He initially got in a boat going to Tarshish. That's the region of modern day Spain in an attempt to avoid obeying God. He got thrown overboard by superstitious sailors and was swallowed by a giant fish. And then God had the fish take him to the beach nearest Nineveh and spit him out. Dude, you're going to do what I tell you to do. Okay? And so we, we can readily deduce that the sign of Jonah is Jesus' promise of his own death, burial, and resurrection over those three days. See, Jonah was as good as dead down in the depths of the sea, and yet he lived and he went on to preach repentance. Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried, and in the earth for three days and three nights, and then resurrected. His, he, he defeated death. He defeated the grave. So Jesus is drawing this analogy between Jonah's time in the belly of the whale and his coming burial and resurrection. And this is so important because uh, Jesus has been very intentional about setting up the end game of his life on earth. And at this point, he's beginning to insert things into the conversation with his apostles that are only going to make sense to them after the resurrection, on the other side of the resurrection. So let's keep going in our text this morning. This is um, section 116, Matthew 16, 5 to 12. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, and so they began discussing it among themselves, saying, hey, we, didn't, we didn't bring it. Did you bring bread? I didn't bring any bread. But Jesus, aware of this, says, oh, you guys of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not yet remember the five loaves in the, for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to see that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then they understood that he wasn't talking about to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then here's Mark 8, 13 to 21, same parallel passage. He left them, he got in the boat again, he went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat and he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. Jesus was aware of this and he said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive and understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, 12. Okay, and, and the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? So here are the disciples. Hey, Jesus, we're out of bread again. Can you just make some more, please? One, one of the growth curves in the Christian life is that every Christian has to navigate learning to rely on Jesus every moment while not turning him into butler Jesus. That's not easy. It's like a, he wants us to lean into him, put our weight down on him fully 
trust him without getting to the place where we start telling him what to do. So that's, that, that can be really difficult, right? That can be hard for some of us to navigate. And Jesus says, guys, you got little faith. He's speaking to his disciples. They still hadn't wrapped their brains around all that had happened in John 6 regarding the bread of life, the two mass feedings. And honestly, I think Jesus is a little frustrated with his guys here. He has to explain it all again. But Jesus isn't talking about physical physical bread, physical food. He's talking about the leaven of the Pharisees, the thing that puffs them up, right? Remember that the staple food of Israel was unleavened bread. It was matzah. Because the, the, the leaven, this goes back to the Passover in Egypt. They were in such a hurry to get out of there. He said, don't put leaven in the bread. You have time for it to rise. Unleavened bread became the staple food, kind of the symbol of um, God's intervention for the Israelites. And, and so this idea of leaven, it just wasn't really a common thing. Now, there is one feast, Pentecost, where they do cook two loaves of leavened bread. That's a, another discussion for another time. But um, Jesus is saying that the leaven of the Pharisees is the thing that puffs them up, like, like leaven does. It's their pride. It's their arrogance. And beyond that, Jesus is the provision for Israel. The 12 baskets left over, signifying the 12 tribes of Israel. For, and, then, and then the feeding of the, the, the other group, right, the Gentile group, seven baskets left over, signifying the seven nations of the Gentiles. You can see that list of the seven nations in Deuteronomy 2. The seven nations that were inhabiting the land of Canaan populate all the non-Jews on the earth today. So if you're not Jewish, and most of us aren't, you're you're from you're, you're a Gentile, and that's our origin. So this is the reality. This is what Jesus is doing. He's saying, "I'm sufficient for Gentiles. I'm sufficient for the Jews. I'm the God of every. I'm the God of the earth. I'm the God of the universe." My provision for you is sufficient. One more section here this morning. We'll make it short. We'll wrap this up. Section 117 is Mark 8, 22 to 26. And so they came to Bethsaida. And people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and he led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And Jesus said, Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and opened, and he opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him home and said, check this out. Don't even enter the village. Don't even go in there. You get this feeling, Jesus just had enough of all the criticism. Just, just, don't, just don't even go back in the village. Coming back to Bethsaida, Jesus encounters this blind man again. Uh, had been brought to him. The crowd begs him to touch him. Jesus leads him out of the village, spits in his eyes, puts his hands on his eyes, and he's not immediately healed. This is really confusing for a lot of us. Um, he could distinguish some things visually. This ends up being a two-part healing, and it leaves a lot of Christians kind of scratching our heads going, what's he doing? What's going on here? So let's deal with the spit issue. Um, <laughs> it's weird. It's just not, it's not what we've been reading. So many, many commentators uh, posit that the warmth of Jesus' saliva would have been soothing to the man's eye pain. I don't know. I'm just telling you what I read this week. Um, we can reasonably deduce that this man was not born blind and that he might have had his sight previously. But what caused the current condition, the text just simply doesn't tell us. It could be that his eyes were wounded in some way or infected by some disease in some way infected. I don't know. Ultimately, it's our best guess. And we don't actually know the details here. But our God is not only a good father who sympathizes with us in our afflictions, but he moves to action in caring for us and tending to our hurts. This, his main purpose, God's main purpose is to grow our faith, right? So there's more to consider here. Like this is back to the signs and wonders stuff. It's like, well, God's going to heal. He's going to heal. Well, what if God has other things he wants to do that the healing physically of a person 
would undermine or short-circuit in the short run? What if this person continuing with this disability or this ailment or whatever for a little while longer is the thing that brings them to Jesus? And then they have salvation forever. What if, what if that's, the, that's the better thing, right? We just can't see those things in the moment because we're so locked into the temporal. We're so locked into right now and what we feel and the angst that we feel. Jesus is looking at the eternal, right? And so just a few verses back, remember Jesus refused to give the Pharisees a sign of his identity because of their persistent unbelief in the face of so many miracles. I'm personally prone to believe that his healing of the man outside of town confirms Jesus's unwillingness to continue performing miracles in front of those who refuse to accept his teaching and accept his identity. He's just done. I'm, I'm, I'm done with that. Um, and he's exhausted. And Jesus rightly commands us to come to him in a disposition of faith. We come trusting his power. We come trusting his goodness, his character, his love. We, we must believe on him and worship him, whether that results in a miraculous healing in our lives or whether Jesus simply provides the grace to endure the pain. We don't get to decide that. He's Lord. He's our sovereign. We got to hold on tightly to Jesus. We got to continue to look at him to meet our physical and spiritual needs. And the answers to our prayers and longings may come quickly. They may come slowly. They, they may come in stages. Partial here, more here. We, we don't know. There are some answers to the prayers that you are currently praying that are going to come to you this week or this month. And there are some answers to the prayers that you're praying that you might only receive in the new heavens and the new earth. That might be the answer. It's like, I'm here, I'm old, I'm new. Woo, everything's good. All the prayers are answered at that point, right? God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is sufficient. This is how Paul says it to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. Paul says, hey, there, like three times, three times. I'm an apostle, right? He didn't say that. But he's, you know, he's like, God chose me to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And three times, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this that this, this ailment, whatever this thing was that Paul was struggling with, he said, I prayed that the Lord would take it from me, that it should leave me. But he keeps saying to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul says, okay, therefore I will boast all the more gladly in, in my weakness so that the power of Christ might rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content. Ooh. Here's a word that Americans like to say and not do. Content. We want to be content. We're very rarely content. For the sake of Christ, he says, I am content with weakness. How many of you could say, I am content with weakness? I couldn't stand up here this morning and honestly say to you, I'm content in my weakness. Paul says it, and it's true. He says, I'm content in my weakness. I'm glad, I'm glad of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weakness. I'm content with insults. I'll be content with hardships and, and even persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then... I am strong. Then I'm strong. It's because Jesus steps into moments of weakness. Jesus steps into our insufficiency. He's got it. He's got it. He loves us. Paul says, then I'm strong. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. So I look back at this passage this morning. This was hard this week because these three little sections of text didn't readily seem to kind of fit thematically with each other. It was, it was a little bit of a struggle. I was really praying, Lord, help me connect the dots here and, and uh, make this cohesive as, as we get to Sunday. And so I just want to give you a couple of handholds as we wrap this up. 
the things that stood out to me this week as I was studying, the first one is obvious, and, and you know it, but it's worth saying again. Jesus hates hypocrisy. He hates duality. He hates hypocrisy. Jesus, at this point in the text, is so tired of the hypocrisy of the Jewish religious establishment. The Jewish people were like sheep without a shepherd, and Jesus isn't even near to the end of running his course. He still has a long way to go. But 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3, tells us this uh, when it comes to, to this kind of thing in our lives where we're just exhausted, we're tired of the hypocrisy. Peter says, you need to just put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy. This is you, the church. This is Peter. The guy said, Jesus is taking us like living stones and he's building up, you know, his church made up of living stones, right? He says, but you've got to put away hypocrisy and you've got to put away evil and envy and all slander. And like newborn infants, like little babies, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you might grow up into salvation if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. See, he's good to us. And here's Jesus and, 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 the, and the people that he came to, his people, the Jews, they're rejecting him. And that they've been so conditioned by their religious leaders. This is why Jesus got so angry at the religious leaders, because hypocrites say one thing and they do something else. And that approach to life and relationships is antithetical to Jesus. It's antithetical to his will and his ways. Jesus only ever does what he says he's going to do. He doesn't say one thing and do another, right? And so Jesus wants, Jesus only ever wants to follow through on his promises. He, he does. He follows through on all his promises. He doesn't make promises that he doesn't keep. They might not be on our timetable, but he keeps all of his promises. He performs all that is written in his word and what his word tells us. He does it. He is the living word. He took your sins and my sins upon himself. Therefore, we should take our cues from that reality. Jesus wants our love and our speech and the motives of our heart to all be as pure as they possibly can, this side of heaven. He wants to refine us and sanctify us so that he can glorify us in his presence. He wants us to follow through on our promises, even when it's hard, even when it's inconvenient. And he wants us to be more and more like him in every way. See, Jesus hates hypocrisy. He hates it with a burning hatred. So here's the second thing I'd say to you. So then don't hang your faith on flashy. You know what I'm talking about? Flashy churches, flashy pastors, flashy. That's just the adjective I chose this week. I was, I was watching... I put myself through it a little bit and actually watched some of these guys that are flashy. Some of them right here in Seattle, flashy. And it was just, I just made my stomach. Don't hang your faith on flashy. I was thinking about King Nebuchadnezzar this week, back in the book of Daniel. You talk about a guy who had a flashy life, Right? When God tore all that down, the thing that stood out to everyone was the king's testimony of how God had worked in his life, right? And I love that story in Daniel because it's not about us. It's, about, it's not about being, like the Christian life, it's not about being flashy. It's not about having the coolest, best facility. Hello. Um, it's not about having it all together. It's about God, his power, his agenda. And ultimately, it's about his goodness and grace. The Pharisees were flashy. They looked good on the outside. But Jesus said inside they were, they were, uh, they were like tombs full of dead men's bones. They were filled with dead things and dead religion. See, flashy will tantalize you for a moment, but it can't sustain you. And I believe this is one of the reasons we're seeing so much deconversion in the American church today. Because people are lured in with flashy. Something big, something grandiose. This is super cool. You're going to love this. And then that pastor has to reinvent the wheel next week. It's got to be flashier. 
because our culture, well, you can't sustain flashy. You got to go up a notch next week and you got to go up a notch from there next week. So how, how about we just preach the word of God? How about we just say what, this is what God's word says. I think that's enough, right? When people have gone to church with the wrong motives, lured by the wrong motives, and when their expectations go unmet, guess what? They're done with church. They're done with church. It's a dangerous game. It can cost people's souls. If we're luring people with a business model, like dangle the flashy thing out here so that we can pull them in, that's not honoring to the Lord Jesus. It's a common mistake that many make today. God can do flashy things. He can do flat. Oh, man, there's nobody that can do greater things than God. Right? But if they're not deeply personal in our lives, dealing with sin, there's usually no heart change. And this is the failure, you know, back to the signs and wonders movement. This is the failure of the signs and wonders movement, especially in America today. Because American Christianity is not a belief system marked largely by humility. American Christianity is largely marked by demand. We demand, we want this from our pastor. We want this from our leaders. We want this. It's like, you're going to get the word. <laughs> you're going to get the word. Um, if you ever go out of this place and find yourself in a church that demands God do this, or God, God does this, or God does that, instead of asking on their knees, run, run. Our motive in seeking the Lord should not be what God can do for us. Our motive in seeking the Lord is who God is, his character, his nearness, his love for us. Our relationship is not about what he can give us, but how he loves us and wants to draw near to us. Jesus is the one who said not to seek for signs and wonders, but to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That is the core attribute of our great God. That's all, all the things. And, and then Jesus said, and all these other things will be added unto you, right? Seek God, seek his righteousness. So again, really quickly, Jesus hates hypocrisy. So don't hang your faith on flashy. But here's the third thing I would say to you, develop discernment. There's a larger issue. It's within the church, the ability to discern, not like right and wrong, like uh, people in the church, like, uh, should I murder my neighbor? That's not, that's not a conversation. I hope. But the answer is no. I'm glad. Thank you, Jared, for weighing in on that. Um, <clears throat> but on the, on the more nuanced issues, pe people can't arrive at, because we've lost discernment. We've lost, because we're not in the word of God. <laughs> That's where we get our discernment. See, the American church is increasingly biblically illiterate, starved of the word of God, and starving people will eat just about anything, including poison apples, to reference Snow White. I mean, th there's a crisis in our day as the church is not only being attacked from without, that's always been the case. That's always been the case. But the attack that's most undermining the church right now is an attack from within. It's heresy within. It's unbiblical teaching within the church. And we've reached a point in the church, capital C, where many people value experience over truth. It's about the experience of church. How did the music make me feel today? How did that, was, the, was the preaching positive and uplifting? Well, uh, you know, we're in Lamentations. I don't know how uplifting that's going to be. I it's so like, can we, can we just not preach the word of God? Is it not enough? Is it, is it not enough? We see this happening all around us today. We've reached a point in the church where, again, you know, people are, it's experience. Yeah, truth, eh, experience. I want the experience. And that's, that's dangerous. And then couple that with this increasing intoxication of signs and wonders. And this is why we're seeing apostasy, Right? I, I want to feel a certain way, and I don't want to be bothered with having to read and understand everything in the Bible. I just want somebody to explain it to me really simply and make me feel good, and then I want to go back to my managed life. That's not Christianity. That's not Christianity. Christianity is, Lord, I'm a sinner, 
And I need you desperately every day. Fill me with your spirit, Lord. I need to be in your word today, Lord. I need to know what you've said so that it can get into my heart and change who I am so that I become more like you. That's, that's the call. That's the call. One of the things we've got to learn to do as a church in, in this context is we've got to learn to spot counterfeits. Now, you might already know this. I, I read this several years ago, but I lost it in my memory bank, and then I got it back this week. But um, when, they, when they hire bank tellers at the bank, they don't start them out handling counterfeit money. They start them handling the real stuff. Because the more the tellers handle real currency, the more intuitively they spot the counterfeits. They don't, they don't spend a great deal of time, like we just hired you, we spend the next six months just studying counterfeit money. No. You need to immerse yourself with the real thing. So this is, this is, the, this, this is a great parallel because like we come into the church, there's so, so many people like, oh, I want to I talk about all the cults and the, and the false religions. And the, yeah, that, that's good. That's good. We need to talk about that. We need to, we need to be clear about where the lines are and where that, you know, what that's about. You got to immerse yourself in the word. You got to handle real currency here. You got to be hands-on with the text. You got to let it get into you. And then we can talk about all the things that are wrong. We don't start there. So Jesus hates hypocrisy. And we don't need to hang our faith on flashy. We do need to develop discernment. And then here's the last thing this morning I want to say to you is genuine faith results in genuine worship. Genuine faith results in genuine worship. The Apostle Peter stated in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Whoever believes in me shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world. This is, I just, I just melded John 14, 6 and John 3, 16. Just, sorry, let's start over. John 14, 6. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. John 3, 16 to 18. Jesus said, for God so loved the world, that he, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world. When Jesus came, he didn't come to judge it. He came to save it. So that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in Jesus is not judged. And he who does not believe in Jesus, you've been judged already because you now believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And so God is offering a fresh start now through a new life with Christ. I don't know, you know, if you're in the room this morning and, and you're kind of new to this whole Christian thing, or you're saying, well, I'm, I don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. I'm just kind of kicking the tires on Jesus right now. And um, that's, that's okay. That's okay. I just want you to know that if you're here this morning, whether you're a new Christian or a non-Christian or an old Christian, and I mean spiritually. No, nobody in here is really old physically. I mean, you know, we're, we're, right. Okay, just so you know. But wherever you're at in your walk with the Lord, wherever you're at on your spiritual journey, there's, there's a place for you, right? And I just want to invite you to, into a time of prayer uh, in these next few moments. Um, if if you're hurt, I just want to say that we don't normally do this on Sunday morning, but if you're hurting, if you're in need in some way, if you just need somebody to pray with you, would you find me uh, or one of our elders this morning and just, just ask for prayer to say, hey, would you pray for me? You don't even have to tell us what it is. Just, just seek us out. Just let us pray for you, love on you. Uh, there's no altar here, <laughs> so we don't do altar calls. Uh, do we do stage calls? I don't know. Um, there's no altar, but if, if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, today could be the day that you pass from death into life. I don't know where you, all of you are on your spiritual journey, but I invite you to do that. And, and we'll just be hanging around outside, and I'm calling it now the Great Hall out there, okay? We're just going to hang out out there, enjoy some fellowship. Don't run away. We'd love, to, we'd love to get to know you and chat a little bit. So let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for our time this morning. I know there have been so many 
uh, moments in the last few years where I'm like, ah, oh, we're going to be in this theater forever. Uh, when are you going to give us a facility, Lord? And uh, Lord, I just thank you. I thank you that we can meet here. I thank you that we can sit in this space and hear the word of God spoken and, and we can worship together freely. And you just, you pour out grace in abundance on us. And we just say to you this morning, we're so grateful for all of your provision, for all of your goodness, Lord. Would you continue to lead us and guide us, not just as a church into the future and what you have for us, but individually, just even into our week ahead, as we think about people that we know that either don't know you or claim to know you, but aren't really walking with you, Lord, help us to uh, both pray for them as they come into our minds and also to be very intentional about seeking them. And we might have conversations and, and, and tell them more about you. Father, embolden your people. Pour out grace on us and fill us with your spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Just wanted to remind you guys, if you are new or newer to Emmaus Road, never been through Next Steps, we've got a Next Steps today at 12 noon. No commitment to join Emmaus Road, just coming to learn about our vision and values, what God's been doing in us and among us since 2015. Your chance to ask me any question you want to ask me. Any question. You should jump at that. Um, just to recap this morning, Jesus hates hypocrisy. So strive to be genuine, sincere, honest. Don't hang your faith on what's flashy. I'm, I'm preaching to the choir. It's a non-flashy church. But as you progress in your spiritual walk with Christ, be intentional about cultivating discernment. We need it more and more in a world of deception. So as you go from this place, hang on to the reality that genuine faith in Jesus is always going to result in genuine worship of Jesus. Emmaus Road Church, you are sent. Thank you.